Senator Doug Mastriano is a retired United States Army colonel. He's also a combat veteran, history professor, author, and even an actor. Today, he's a freshman in the Pennsylvania State Senate. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs, and I am in downtown Harrisburg with Senator Doug Mastriano. Uh, Senator, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. Well, I could also call you professor. I can call you colonel. Uh, I can call you <laughs> author. I can call you actor, right? I mean, all of these uh, uh, titles. Doctor. Apply. Doc, yes, doc, sorry, I almost missed that. One that uh, you earned, uh, not an honorary degree, Thank right? You. But, uh, um, you've got all these things that, uh, we, uh, that I want to talk about here. Uh, but uh, and certainly your background is uh, incredibly interesting uh, and things you continue to uh, work on uh, while you're also a state senator. And uh, you're one of the, I guess, uh, almost the, the freshest uh, freshmen, if you will, in their freshman term, um, despite uh, uh, having, uh, you know, being follically challenged like myself. Uh, <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it, it is. It is. We're just growing more face. We're such good, <laughs> so good looking. Uh, but you won a special election in May of, of 2019. So you uh, haven't been in Harrisburg for a year yet. And I want to talk about that. But uh, before we get to uh, how you ended up in the state Senate and uh, the 30 years uh, before that uh, in the in the U.S. Uh, Army. Um, tell us about uh, your growing up uh, in Pennsylvania and your roots. I know they go way, way back, don't they? Well, my wife's roots actually oh, yeah. go back to the 16 and 1700s. They actually settled the back country, Franklin County today. Obviously, it wasn't called that then, but it was called the back, back country, not the frontier. Frontier's out west, way out west. Yes, yes. And they had to deal with the uh, Indian Wars. They lived peaceably with the Indians for some decades, and then the war broke out, and their personal relationship actually with Chief Shingus, the chief of the Delaware, saved their lives. It still cost them a lot. They lost their children to other Indian tribes, and they, had to, they were forced to walk all the way to Canada. But, and then exchange and come back looking for their kids. But it's a crazy story. Now, my story is, is, is not as interesting as my wife's. <laughs> my wife's is. But that's I, neat. You've got that, uh, that your wife has that dating back to I that. am blessed. Yeah, yeah. So she has deep roots here. Uh-huh. And you know, the firsthand experiences of the costs of, of fighting on the frontier, the backcountry, and then going through the French and Indian War, the Pontiac Uprising, the American Revolution, Peace at last, and her Scottish relatives are like, well, guess what? We're going to head west. It's like you're not going to sit back and enjoy the fruits of your labor. And uh, just tough people, the people that settled this land here, and they earned it. And what about the Mastrianos? Tell us about uh, them. Where'd you come from? Uh, so, where'd you grow up? Yeah, so being a typical American, quite mixed, uh, despite uh-huh. what the last name might indicate. And uh, on the English side, my grandma Mastriano was a Richardson, and actually she's uh, from a long line of Quakers who settled uh, in Pennsylvania, but close to Philadelphia, and they're actually buried not too far from Newtown. There's a Quaker cemetery south of that. And so that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And then on the Mastriano side, uh, they came over on the boat uh, about 100 years ago. And uh, like most immigrants, took the menial jobs. Like so Grandpa Bono, so my mom, mom's side, he worked on the Pennsylvania Railroad, helped laying tracks you know, outside of Philly as well, and then also then branched off into Jersey. And so... It's quite extensive roots. It's quite a mix here, but it's an American story. My dad was a Navy man, 
And so my dad spent uh, more than 20 years in the United States Navy, and uh, I was always proud of him. My earliest memory was probably when I was four or five, and uh, he was stationed at the time at Lakehurst, or of course where the Hindenburg collapsed mm -hmm. in the 30s. And uh, as helicopters flying low over my head, my three older brothers were out in the woods playing army or something, and they're, they're a bit older than me, my brothers. And then we look up in this helicopter, there's my dad hanging out the door, waving at us. And I was like looking up at him like, wow, he's my hero. I want to be like him when I grow older. But you didn't go into the Navy. You went into the Army. Uh, uh, how yes. did it, uh, talk about how you decided that you wanted to serve in the military and a bit about your long career uh, and certainly being on, uh, you know, the side of uh, during the Cold War. Uh, right. You, you uh, were in, I know, West Germany yes. uh, at the time and then served in Operation Desert Storm and in Afghanistan. Um, how did how did you decide that you actually I want to go serve in the military? What uh, was that? Well, so as most of us in our generation grew up on the feet or at the feet of the greatest generation, you know, World War II veterans. And my uncle Joe, tough Hungarian guy, Joe Guba, and uh, <laughs> so he married, of course, one of my aunts. Uh, and anyway, he was in Third Army during the Second World War, and he was a Sherman tank driver in, in Patton's Third Army, Second Armor Division, and so. That generation usually didn't talk about their experiences, mm -hmm. but I was such a geek. I loved history. One of my favorite books growing up was The Longest Day, Cornelius Ryan, yeah. A Bridge Too Far. Yeah. Uh, the Cactus Air Force about the Marines fighting at Aquatic Canal, they, you know, uh, that vicious fight they had there. And so I would sit at his feet and ask him just the goofiest questions. Uncle Joe, did you ever, did you ever see a tiger tank? Did you ever see a panther tank? And, and he goes, uh, yep, Doug. And then he'd tell me a story. And he always wrap it up, you know what I mean? Kind of his comfort phase, yeah. you know what yeah. I mean? And so Bastogne, December 1944, the, the Nazis attack, and this is Hitler's last gasp on the Western Front. And the plan is to break the Allied lines and then to get to Antwerp and, and block the Americans and British from the ports there and the Canadians, the Allies. And so uh, our, our boys are trapped in Bastogne. 101st Airborne and 10th Armored Division are trapped in Bastogne. This key road network, kind of like Gettysburg was in, in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And the Nazis are trying to reduce this pocket with 101st and the 10th Armored. And uh, it seems like all hope's lost. But here comes Patton. His men are in contact in, in Alsace-Lorraine. He wheels an entire army from a, a west-east fight to a south-north fight. Uh, that's incredible undertaking. And part of the spearhead force leading the breakthrough to try to save our guys in Bastogne before they're forced to capitulate is my Uncle Joe. He's one of the lead tanks. And they're just about to break through when a, a Tiger tank opens fire and blows his tank to pieces. He's the only survivor. It was wow. very foggy, he said. So he had his hatch open. Everybody else was buttoned up, afraid a Nazi might throw a grenade at him. And so he's thrown out of the tank, and he wakes up sitting Indian-style in a puddle, he said, up to his, up to his uh, chest. And with his intestines floating in front of him. Mm. So he's, I said, well, what did you do, Uncle Joe? You know, I'm, kind of, I'm riveted by this, uh -huh. being a young man, very intrigued by the Second World War and these heroes. And he goes, well, Doug, I took my, got up out of the puddle, took my intestines, put them back in my stomach, and held it in place, and walked to the first aid station. <laughs> I'm like, this guy is a stud. We don't make people like <laughs> No. <that. laughs> so then, you know, he goes, they, they stitch him up, and they have to evacuate him because the Nazis are launching a counterattack. The SS have their armor there, and they're pushing again. And so he's evacuated a couple hospitals back, and they stitch him up, and in a couple days, like, I need to get back to the fight. I can't mm. leave my boys out mm. there, even though most mm. of his friends were killed in that tank. And so he pestered the doctors so much that they just let him go and put him back into the line. Wow. It's wow. tough as steel. And you said, I want to be like Uncle Joe. I was so intrigued by his <laughs> stories that at five years old, I knew I was going to be a soldier in the United States Army. I wanted to serve my country as a soldier. My, there was no expectations from my dad 
to join the Navy. Uh, I, I, I would get seasick, you know, on the boats. So that, that was in motion sickness. That was an indicator. And I had two brothers, two of my older brothers joined the Marine Corps. So for a while there, I thought it'd be cool to follow them you know, in their footsteps. But I returned to my roots, joined the Army, and served for 30 years. But what you also, during that time, have earned a Ph.D., uh, a Bachelor of Arts, uh, what, four master's yes. degrees? <laughs> uh, you, you, you're a perpetual student, it seems. Uh, you still taking classes uh, to, to this day? Uh, right now, it's hard knocks <laughs> in the Senate. <laughs> yes, indeed. So um, talk about, uh, you know, your time in the military and certainly in the context that it seems we're talking a lot about socialism, right, or democratic, however Bernie Sanders wants to define it, or m- members of your own Senate, uh, the, the Pennsylvania Senate, yeah. Pennsylvania House are embracing uh, socialism. You were on the other side of, of socialism, right. communism. Um, and uh, I mean, it seems that we've, it's not that long ago, yet it seems like it's so long ago that people have forgotten uh, what this, uh, you know, uh, type of government really means for people's freedom, uh, their prosperity. Uh, uh, you know, put that into context, given what you saw in the military and have fought against and what you see going on in this country right now. Yeah, it's really troubling to me, Matt, that we're at a time here where it looks like a third of the next generation thinks that socialism is attractive and something that should be experimented with. And my question is, where has the socialism worked? Because then you'll give them cases, well, it hasn't been implemented properly. That's the same utter nonsense I was told during the communist days in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Oh, it hasn't been implemented properly. It always results in a dictator, whether it's in Venezuela, whether it's in Cuba, or whether it's in Soviet Russia or the Soviet Union proper, it's always a dictator. And so how does this end? Uh, my first experience, so obviously I, Reagan is, is kind of my role model early on as a young man. I saw him in Philadelphia in the 80s on the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic, 1984. <laughs> introduced, strangely enough, by, by Governor Casey, uh-huh. a, a good governor. And uh, The old school Democrats. That's right. right. Yeah, we, we, yeah. They don't make don't, them like he, they used he's to. He's turning over his, in his grave uh, where the, that party's gone to this today. And where his son has gone as well. Yeah. I mean, his son's completely out of line with his dad ideologically. And it's really disappointing to me. I can't imagine for the family. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was an opportunity as a young man to go on a short-term exchange to, uh, as an exchange student to Germany, to West Germany. And our, our partner school was in Hanover. And on my second time doing this, uh, worked my butt off to pay it off. It wasn't given to me. Middle class family, blue collar family. Um, Mom and dad did help, though. But we, we did a quick trip to East Berlin. Well, West Berlin. We stayed in a youth hostel. Really cheap. A couple bucks a day. And uh, my German brothers, you know, quotation mark, hey, let's run over to East Germany. They just opened the uh, U-Bahn, the, the subway, from West Berlin to uh, Friedrichstrasse in East Berlin. And uh, we'll come back on a formal tour later on. And I'm like, okay, I guess we'll run over real quick. We'd just been to Checkpoint Charlie. I had this poster of an East German soldier, famous poster of the East German soldier jumping over the barbed wire, throwing his AK-47 aside. I had this propaganda poster in my hand. And okay, not thinking clearly. But I'm like, what do I do? We go over. We get the Friedrichstrasse just to say we were in East Berlin, you know, and we're going to head back and go on a formal tour the next day. I, I make the mistake of merely taking a picture in the subway of the wall that says Friedrichstrasse, kind of, you know, as proof that I was here. Uh-huh. Yeah, just like people do today. Right. And out walks this short, stubby communist guy, you know, train conductor-looking dude, and he runs over to me, rips my camera out of my hands, and then he hops on the phone. And then before I know it, I have three folks Polizei, three people's police show up to detain me and question me for just, why'd you take a picture here of the wall? <laughs> I'm like, uh-huh. oh, my gosh. <laughs> 
So, okay, everything I heard about the Soviet socialism, the people want to call it communism, it's Soviet socialism. They yeah. call themselves the Soviet socialists. I mean, this is a, this is a, this is PhD uh, Tom Fullery changing names. Yeah. It's a socialist system. We know that. Well, USSR, right? Union yeah. of Soviet yeah. Socialist Socialists Republics. Yeah, yes. There's nothing <laughs> communist about that. Uh-huh. The, they came in from Marx's ideas on the commune, but it's a sure. socialist system. It's, it's centralized power. Yeah. I know I'm preaching to the choir out here. <laughs> but so I'm detained here. And anyway, the next day we go in. Uh, in Indiana, they let me go. I guess they didn't want to have an international incident. I'm a 17-year-old guy. I actually had hair, long hair. It was a thing back then. I had it, and I enjoyed it. <laughs> and then I go back the next day, and we stop in a in a pub, you know, in a tavern. And there's this kid my age, about 17 also, and he goes, I hear you're American. I'm like, oh, great, here we go. And then he starts yelling, America is the greatest country in the world. Russia sucks. I hate the Soviets. And I'm like, dude, this, <laughs> the uh, secret police were called Stasi, Stasi, S-T-A-S-I. And I'm like, dude, the Stasi, you're going to come and get Because they already came and arrested me and threw me in jail. I tried to escape this country a couple years ago. And they put him in slave labor for like two years. Can you imagine a teenager? Wow. Just wanted freedom. Yeah. And, and that's the result. And the idea that, that young people today think the system's good. Yeah. We, we, are we so, won't experience that kind of oh, socialism, yeah, we'll right? Yeah, that, yeah, we're going to – we'll do it right wherever it's chicken in every pot, all of that, right? So we had the richest, freest country in the face of the earth in human history. Mm-hmm. People haven't been ever so affluent. That never has the wealth been so broadly. Our poorest people have an overweight problem yeah. down south. Okay, that tells you something here. Yeah. And so we have the, 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 the best fruits of society and life, and yet people want exchanges for social system. Well, well, they'll have to wait 10 years. Okay, let's use it. East Germany was the best example, arguably, of, of, of Soviet socialism. Mm-hmm. implement it and take you about 10 years to get a car the car you'd pay for in advance it's called a trabi a trabant um and uh, i actually was involved in an accident after the iron curtain came down with one of these the car was made out of pressed wood it had a two-stroke engine <laughs> they had to be banned from the autobahns because the best they could do was 45 kil- uh, miles per hour and they were getting rear-ended and people were dying and so that's the best that's, that system yeah. would do no freedom of speech no freedom of religion the government controls everything they'll raise your kids for you and that's when i hear you know we need to have pre-k fully funded education that's the kind of system we used to make fun of where the government will raise your kids and indoctrinate them where the schools became tools of propagation and propaganda hmm sounds familiar well and these are the things that you know folks will say oh doug you're that, that's hyperbole that wouldn't happen in america um and i and and my response is Look, I don't think that, uh, that, that the people of Germany uh, were any, uh, you know, different than the vast majority of people that uh, wanted the same things for their kids. But they embraced leadership that was promising these things, that whether right. it was Hitler, uh, and that things can go in that direction. And it's, it's, not, it's not just, oh, we're going to do it right this time. Uh, because this is what happens when you concentrate power, uh, right. take people's freedom away, and you say, you know what, they can make better decisions for us, uh, whether it's in Moscow or in Washington, D.C., or in Harrisburg. Uh, so that these threats to, to liberty, it's, it's essentially why our founders uh, created the government that they did right. and uh, told us that uh, we're going to have to fight to protect it, hopefully not with arms, but uh, at the ballot box. Right. Uh, and fortunately, we're still doing that. Uh, that it hasn't devolved into what 
so many other countries have done when it comes to struggle for power. I agree. And, and as the founder said, the total power corrupts totally. And that's a fact. We see that in every case of human history. You know, in the end, the Roman Republic became a dictatorship, a tyrannical government under Julius Caesar. In, in the end, republics will collapse and people don't do their bid and, and be involved. You know, whether it's uh, Soviet socialism or national socialism or democratic socialism, as Bernie wants to call mm -hmm. it, they all lead to the same way. And, and his logical fallacies of comparing Finland, Sweden, any Scandinavian country as a successful socialistic country is just dead flat wrong. They are capitalistic governments with welfare programs integrated, with right. social programs. It's not, they're not socialist governments. And by the way, how are they able to afford this? We have something called NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, of, of which America is one of 29 members, but the preponderance of the bill is footed by America. We've provided a security umbrella under Western and Central Europe and Scandinavia ever since the end of the Second World War, and it's because of American might and Amer the threat of American uh, nuclear reprisal against the Soviet Union that these governments were able to lowball on defense, as most are doing today. And because of that, they're able to afford these programs. With, under, under Donald Trump, though, He's demanding they spend more. Yeah. He's increased the NATO budget by $30 billion on the backs of other countries. This is the thing, Matt, that drives me crazy. So uh, I spent 10 years of my life in Germany, three of which was during the Cold War, and I believed in the cause. I still do. When I was leading my troops as a young 20-some-year-old man on the Iron Curtain with, with my, uh, my – it was fantastic. I was on the, the pointy end of the spear, the front light of freedom, all these, these phrases that were so true. My first mission on the border, I felt so fulfilled. Like, I'm making a difference here. Mm -hmm. I stand against that godless system. That godless system is being imposed on us here, though. We're told to leave our faith at the door, not to talk about Christianity, not to talk about religion. We're, to we're told this fallacy t ripped out of a letter from Thomas Jefferson had nothing to do with the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Separation of church and state, yeah. that is not in the Constitution of yeah. either Pennsylvania yeah. or the federal government. Right. But we're trying to impose a, a secular society that's fictitious on an American people that need faith. John Adams said either the American people would be led either by the Bible or the bayonet. A, a, a republic, not a democracy, a republic needs people who have a moral compass. Yeah. And for us to succeed, remember who we are. Yeah. Now, one last thing here is in some ways we are fighting for that. You're on the front lines here and you're making a huge difference. And thank you for your support. You bet. On the other side here, look what happens when people step aside, when they mm -hmm. don't get out and vote. Look at Virginia. Mm -hmm. That's because the population of Virginia should have showed up and vote. And instead they sat aside. Now they have this radical group, mostly in, in, in northern Virginia, but also in the Richmond area, that, that's co-opted that, and they're threatening all their freedom. Even the freedom of speech is under threat. There, there's a law pending, a bill. It's a bill before the chamber there that says it's going to be against the law to um, question or criticize an elected official. This is where yeah. it goes when yeah. we stand aside. Yeah. Well, and so uh, it's uh, Edmund Burke said, you know, evil triumphs when right. good people do nothing. And uh, that's where good people need to stand up. And uh, stand up you have. Uh, let me get back to your, your personal story. Okay. So you spent the time in, in Germany uh, a number of years while uh, the Soviet Union still existed. Uh, and then uh, you ended up being part of the tip of the spear, right, going to liberate Kuwait yes. uh, and Iraq, uh, Operation Desert Storm, and then multiple tours into Afghanistan. That's right. Talk about uh, that experience. Uh, and at, at those times, you're leading men, uh, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I was with a 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment, and now it's just 2nd Cavalry. They got rid of their tanks, sadly. <laughs> and so I'm serving in the Iron Curtain, the Czechoslovakian and East German borders. Both these countries don't exist anymore. It's fantastic. <laughs> and uh, we didn't see, nobody saw it coming. As military, military intelligence officer with a top secret clearance with, with you know, caveats added on to mm -hmm. that. Didn't see it coming, and suddenly, before we knew it, the Cold War was ending around us, and people rejoiced. 
And I was on a mission with the British up actually in North Germany and by Helmstedt where they had a site. The British had a site, a joint American-British site. And they had a little TV. So we're collecting again the last Warsaw Pact, the, 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 the counterpart to NATO, the Soviet-led Warsaw Pact. Their last exercise called East Wind. And the Brits had a small black and white TV uh, in their secure facility. And I'm watching these tanks in Kuwait City, Iraqi T-72 tanks. And I'm like, man, that's messed up, but that will never affect me. That's halfway around the world. And they've come to find out a few months later, you know, well, actually within days, President Elder Bush is sending troops there. And then in a few months later, I'll find most of my, my colleagues in Germany being deployed out 7th Corps, 7th Armored Corps, the, trained to fight the Soviets. We trained really right. hard there. And we're going to find ourselves in Saudi Arabia in December and January preparing to liberate Kuwait. A little different uh, land to fight on, correct? Yes. Quite. <laughs> I mean, don't tell soldiers this. So we show up. How, how long are we going to be there? Oh, at least a year or more. Okay, prepare the families for the worst case. What are our casualties going to be? Well, we don't know, but it's probably maybe ten to 70,000 casualties. We don't know. So we're going to order 10,000 body bags for a unit. We're like, why would you tell us this? <laughs> and the Iraqis, you know, they they've been in, just came out of an eight-year war with Iran. Man, did okay, then bad, then okay. Um, had used chemical weapons against the Kurds, the Shiites, the Iranians. I mean, so ready to use chemical warfare. We trained for this, but even if you're good, you'll 10% of your troops will become casualties because of a you know, hole not fitting your mask right. And so we're training hard, getting ready for the fight. And I never saw this in America before. In my studies as a historian, suddenly people are putting yellow ribbons on trees. Pray for our troops became a watchword and motto. Pray for our troops. My wife had 20-some churches praying for my squadron alone, so I was with 4th Squadron, 2nd Cavalry Regiment. Come to find out, we're going to lead the main attack against the Iraqi Republican Guard. So we're going to swing around that the That was back. Saddam Hussein's elite yes. uh, uh, forces, I right? call them yeah. the bad Republicans. Okay. <laughs> Saddam Hussein's elite Republican Guard. Isn't it funny how, you know, you got the Republic of, of Korea, you know, <laughs> yes. uh, North Korea, and, and they kind of appropriate, uh, it's Orwellian. Uh, speak, it is, right? Newspeak. Yeah. I love it. Now you're talking. <laughs> And we, we strike into Iraq. Actually, the day before the ground war, we were the first into Iraq for the main attack. And we entered on the 23rd of, of February 1991. Sorry, my memory's slipping here. <laughs> at 1300, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, with some targets I nominated are picked off by the Air Force, by artillery. It's fantastic. At 1.30 in the afternoon, our, our first Abram tanks breaks into Iraq. And one of the biggest fears we had was Saddam Hussein was going to use chemicals on us. He mm -hmm. authorizes commanders to do that. The wind favored it, blowing from Iraq to Saudi Arabia here. And so all the, and he, everything was lined up. The, the weapons were there. They've used them a lot. They use them against his own people. They're going to use them against the Americans. And he said, if you come into Iraq, we're going to use it. It's happening, yeah. And then as the first tank blows into Iraq, now I'm the intel officer for the squadron. I talked a lot about this. I'm watching all these dust devils around me. And the wind suddenly, at that exact moment our first tank went to Iraq, the wind shifted from its prevailing blowing from Iraq to Saudi Arabia to the opposite, which meant if Saddam used chemicals on us, it would have blown back into the face of his troops. And it stayed that way until 8 o'clock in the morning, 28 February, the ceasefire went to effect. That is divine providence. Wow. God heard the prayers of the people <laughs> in Pennsylvania and across the state. For those of you that prayed for un unknown soldiers, I was one of them. So uh, do, you, do you have any intelligence that said they were ready to do this if the winds were blowing in the right direction? Is there anything that yes. says that, that would have likely have happened? Yeah, happened, we, uh, we had reports and intercepts that the division commands were delegated authority by Saddam Hussein to use them in Iraq if we came in. On the Kuwait side where the Marines and some, and some other units and some Arab units went in, uh, not so sure, but for, he was going to defend Iraqi territory. Hmm. So uh, you end up in Operation Desert Storm, also some tours in, in Afghanistan. Uh, how did that, talk about that a little bit. 
So Desert Storm is a great victory, and all the lessons learned from Vietnam were applied by the United States Army, because it was a ground fight, but also the Air Force. And uh, it's, mad. it's really heartbreaking to watch in my lifetime. You know, I saw the shame of Vietnam. I, I remember the evacuations on TV for the mm -hmm. South Vietnamese trying to get out in Saigon and the lines of men and women who had been on our side and knew they were going to be killed by the communists, by the socialists from the north, the tolerant mm -hmm. people. <laughs> a, a million are going to die in the purges, by the way, just like it always happens in these systems. And uh, the shame, the POWs coming home. And then um, the United States Army took a hard look at, you know, where we go wrong and Apply these lessons, Desert Storm was the showcase. Then 2003, 9-11 oh, happens, more on that in a second. 2003, the Bush administration decides they're going to you know, invade Iraq and take the whole country down. Mm -hmm. And so all the ideas that, ma that made victory so sweet in Desert Storm were cast aside. Rumsfeld, I'd say, is probably one of the worst Secretary of Defenses in our history, second to McNamara. I, uh, I'm sorry to offend people out there, but I saw some of the things he did behind the scenes. And uh, he sent in a small force package. He wanted to minimize it. He best case, the Iraqis will welcome us and we'll leave as heroes within a few months. You know, when you best case of war and, and unlearn the lessons, guess you get stuck in a quagmire. Iraq and Afghanistan were both on, on his watch, and they were unlearning the lessons of hmm. Vietnam. Hmm. So uh, you end up uh, a number of tours. Uh, along this time, are you studying uh, on one of these uh, four master's degrees? I, I know you got your undergraduate in the 80s. Uh, but uh, when did you find time to uh, do all of these uh, additional degrees? Uh, you know, the military offers educational opportunities, and I'm surprised. And how you took advantage of it, huh? <laughs> anytime there was an opportunity, I, I, I tended to ask. And I was surprised how little competition there often was. Mm. Sometimes there's a lot of applicants, but sometimes not so much. My first master's was in strategic intelligence was in 1992, so after, right after Desert Storm. Mm -hmm. So I come as a young lieutenant with, you know, real combat experience here. Now, how do you put this in a strategic context from an intelligence perspective, which comes in handy, actually, here in Harrisburg. And then uh, <laughs> my next two masters were uh, with the Air Force at the Air University in Alabama, and the first one was in military operations and art, military operational art. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do you think about war? How do you do war, real war, war on paper? And then the next one was in air power. And while I'm studying for my air, it's called a, a, a JEDI course. It's an advanced strategic studies course that the Army and Air Force has, and the Marines and Navy has it too. And only a handful of people are selected. My class was 27, uh, 25 Air Force officers. Many went on to do great things. One's a three-star now. And uh, two Army officers, I was one of the two. And so while I'm in this advanced Jedi course on warfare, 9-11 um, happens. And so my generation will be the lead planners in the aftermath of that. Mm -hmm. And then I'll find myself the next year being a lead planner for invading Iraq through Turkey, which, of course, we had a solid plan, but the Turks weren't getting paid enough. And so anyway, in the end, we ended up tossing most of that plan. I was seven months of my life. And anyway... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, uh, Ankara, and the Turkish general staff for that. But uh, so now I'll be in the United States Army Europe headquarters in Heidelberg, Germany, and then after that I'll end up in NATO for four years, also located in Heidelberg, Germany. So I'm in the, basically the Army headquarters for NATO in, in Germany at the time. And we're, we're not going anywhere, so I find myself volunteering to get into the fight. I, I need to get to Afghanistan because, you know, you train for the, the Super Bowl. You want to get into the game. Yeah. And, hey, coach, put me in. So the first deployment was to support the Italians. So NATO was running the show for us while we were busy in Iraq for a while. They, they, they did a great job, actually, by the way. They, they did not sign up for war. They signed up for a rebuilding mission that turned into a war. And I was there to watch this unfold. And uh, I supported an Italian unit at first. And uh, actually, I was a lieutenant colonel at the time. And they said, well, you can come if you don't mind working for a major. And I'm like, I don't care who I work for. Get me in the fight. <laughs> and uh, I'm not a glory seeker. I don't want people to misinterpret this. It's just this, this, this overwhelming 
patriotism that comes in. It's like, my country was attacked. I need to get right, in this fight. Right, right. And then I volunteered the next year again. And while I'm in the middle of that volunteer time, my unit in Germany is mobilized to, to do a full tour down in Afghanistan. So me and my – I had, I had my, my Danish volunteer with me. I couldn't compel my – I commanded NATO soldiers, but they fall under national rules. Unless they're Americans, I didn't have legal authority over them. So I had all these volunteers from the Netherlands, from, from Belgium, from Dan Denmark with me. Patriotic people fighting our war, by the way. Hmm. So we rushed back to Heidelberg, Germany as fast as we could to join our unit in pre pre preparing for the next deployment. And I found myself in my last deployment in Afghanistan as the director of intelligence for Afghanistan. And this was uh, 07, 08, 09? Yeah, that correct? last deployment yeah. was yeah. 2007 to 2008. Okay. And so uh, you ended up uh, coming back uh, to the, the uh, Army War College, right, in Carlisle? Yes. And uh, is that uh, when you start to do some more teaching? And uh, you, you've authored two books, a third one coming yes. out here soon. Uh, is that when this stuff uh, all takes off and you get your Ph.D. in, in so, history as uh, well? I'm a student at the War College, <laughs> class of 2010, okay. and uh, they offer about two colonels a year a chance to apply for a Ph.D. program. And that was a tough. That was a tough process to go through. There's obviously a lot more competition because this, this is a gold standard of education. Mm -hmm. I apply, and I'm blessed to be one of the two officers selected. And so I go into the program and I f complete my two years of, of coursework and, and knock out my dissertation with, within I don't know eight months of finishing the coursework, and that that to pay back the taxpayer for this investment, I have to finish my army career as a colonel at the War College teaching strategy. I mean, come on. Twist my arm. Oh, yeah, right. Especially when my, I'm a, <laughs> at this point now, I'm a strategic intelligence officer, which is a subfield within military intelligence. And there's no general officers in my field. So there's nowhere I can go. As a colonel is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so I finished my fi last five years in the Army as, as a colonel. And then I retire in 2017. And Matt, I'm taking stock. I really go through a hard time because obviously so much of my life is tied in with the Army, my identity, you know, so much. But more importantly, the sacrifice and cost of freedom. I think it's 2016, so reset me a little bit before my retirement. I'm having a hard time imagining being leaving the Army and handing the country off into such bad shape to my son as opposed to how I got it from my dad. And I was really struggling. I was like, what happened to our country? What has my generation done? We dropped the ball. We were confused about gender, confused about marriage. It just everything is on the table. Things that, that you know, biologically, scientifically should not dis dispute or debate <laughs> are, are debatable, depending how you feel today. Identify however you want. And I'm like, what has gone wrong with our generation? We have lost our way. And so I'm complaining about this to a radio broadcaster, a young man. And I'm, you know, feeling pretty self-righteous, all this sacrifice, blah, blah, blah. And this, this young kid looks over at me, and I, and I, I hate whiners, Matt. <laughs> this kid looks over at me and politely and respectfully says, well, Colonel, why don't you do something about it? And I'm like, wow. Because uh -huh. in the past, people, I never wanted to run for office. Mm -hmm. And I had all the excuses most people would have. I'm not connected politically. Yeah. I didn't even know who the, the county leadership was at the time. Right. And it turns out they're fantastic people. You know, and I don't have a lot of wealth, so how am I going to pay for this campaign? And my dad raised me not to ask for money. We talked about this before. <laughs> you know, and all of these blah, blah, blah. But they're excuses. And so as you quote it rightly so, you know, when we stand aside, then who's going to be yeah. elected? Yeah. So uh, you end up saying, all right, I'm going to run for Congress, right? That's right. Uh, and so that was your way of stopping whining and doing something exactly. about it, huh? Um, but uh, that uh, obviously didn't work out. Uh, and then the opportunity to run for the state Senate uh, opened up with the retirement of Rich Alloway. That's right. Uh, and uh, you say, I'm in. And you ended up winning a special election uh, in, in, uh, in May of uh, 2019, right? That's right. 
And who would have known, you know, when I ran for Congress, I, I was all in, as you can imagine. It covered parts of 10 counties, so it was a huge spread from, you know, from yes. Adams out to Westmoreland up to Huntington, Cumberland, a huge, vast stretch of land. Ran really hard. They ran on a small budget. Uh, eight people in the race, including me, half of them from my county. You, know, you <laughs> kind of wonder if, if the politics came in, everybody's you know, trying to minimize your vote. But it didn't matter. Overwhelmingly won my county, Franklin County, by 28 points. I mean, half the counties from the yeah. county. So people got the message anytime. I got a chance to talk to people. We did a real gra serious grassroots effort. Mailed out 10,000 letters. My wife led that project. Personal, basically, uh, this is Doug Mastriani. Here's who I am. Here's what I want to do for you. I, I sure appreciate you to put me in this job. It was really a job application. So a non-politician trying to figure out a political job, <laughs> right? Yeah, this, the, the strategic uh, uh, deployment uh, was important. But I will have to say that uh, I think you'll 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 be very glad that you didn't go off and be one of 435. That actually being <laughs> one of 50 in the uh, Pennsylvania State Senate, you'll be able to get a lot more done uh, and uh, be able to impact people's lives more directly than even you would at, at, at Congress. So I'm glad I'm glad you lost, uh, <laughs> but I'm glad you also won uh, this election. So so talk about what your experience has been here less than a year, uh, but you're up for re-election here in 2020. Yeah. So you're seeking another term. Uh, another four years to add on to the near year you'll you'll have here shortly. Um, how's how's your experience been? Has it been what you expected? I mean, the the people that you're uh, interacting with, your colleagues. Um, talk about that. Well, so this is the third year in a row that I have to run. So I mean, we're we're learning <laughs> yeah. a lot. Congress special now, yeah, and, and then reelection. Yep. And I would say to people out there. So, you know, losing was a big deal to me because we'd invested so much. We've just poured our hearts, souls, and minds in it. And I, was, I didn't really question God's plans. So I don't want people to take it the wrong way. But I was kind of like, what was the point of that? And then come to find out that was my introduction to Franklin County, which I won, and Fulton County, which I won, and did well in Cumberland and Adams. So now Mastriano is not an unknown, but I had no idea that Rich Alleyway was going to retire. Right. You know, when, you know, nine months later. And then I get this call last January that he's stepping aside. I was like, wow, okay. And so it, it seemed like a no-brainer. It's like the foundation has been laid. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank God for some other things in my life at the time as well. But as far as what I've learned here is I am actually quite pleasantly surprised at, at something. I've worked, obviously, most of my life in the federal system there. And getting major change done in a federal bureaucracy is, is nigh and un impossible. And I, I, that's not hyperbole. It's really hard to turn that ship around yeah. the federal government. Whether it's the United States Army with 250 years of history and a, and a massive bureaucracy or the federal government writ large or any of the you know, three-letter agencies. You come to Harrisburg here, and we have a bureaucracy. We have a mini swamp. What you see politically in D.C. is happening here yep, as well with yep. the socialists you mentioned. With but a lot less uh, attention, unfortunately. Yes, that, that's uh, true. It, it happens under the radar. Uh, it is a microcosm yeah. of, of what's going on writ large nationwide. And Pennsylvania is a battleground state. We always have been, whether mm -hmm. it's 1776, 1863, or 2016, or 2020. We have to fight for our state, you know, politically speaking. Mm -hmm. and on the other side, though, I, you, can get, you can get stuff done at the state level. It takes a bit of tenacity and hard work, creative thinking. Obviously, I've taken on, you know, head on some of the state bureaucracy here that I think are utterly corrupt and, and the personification of bureaucracy gone wrong, such as DEP. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll call them out. Mm -hmm. And I'm sickened by their modeling and their lies and manipulation. 
because they're extorting. I'm going to use terms that are a bit extreme here, yeah. but I really believe it. Extorting money out of people for nefarious reasons based off of, of questionable data or no data at all, just modeling. Mm. Garbage in, garbage out. I've been in academia enough to know you need modeling. We'll give you a figure that models your what outcome do yeah. you want. Right. We know how grants work. A lot of you know sometimes academic grants are genuine. We need serious research on the phone. Usually, especially if Saudi Arabia is funding them, you know, in some cases, in the, in the British case that I know of, uh, there's a predetermined outcome or story you need to come out with. And so it is with DEP modeling. They don't have the five years of historic data on, on the rain tax of runoff of the municipal separate storm sewer system. So they come up with models that assess what we believe might be the runoff of phosphates and nitrates, you know, toxins, mm -hmm. pollution into the, into the waterways, which goes into Chesapeake Bay. And so I don't know how we could feel we could allow people like that to tax our folks and redistribute wealth from Pennsylvania to the cities or Harrisburg based off of questionable data or no data at all. And these are uh, hidden taxes uh, in many yes. ways, right? They're not, uh, they're not explicit. Uh, they're uh, determined by an arbitrary uh, uh, governmental agency that, like That's you right. said, they can kind of set some of these standards that are very difficult to push back on uh, because ultimately you are basically guilty until you prove your innocence that That's you're right. not uh, polluting or or uh, violating some of the environmental laws. I agree. And so when you have the inspectors come down and they intimidate our townships and local government and municipalities, uh, with some they'll give you inducements, we'll exempt you. Okay, but that exemption won't last for long because they'll come for you eventually. Mm. And so divide and conquer. And, they, you know, they give nefarious. There was actually a meeting last week in, in Franklin County where one of the DEP uh, agents, I do say agents deliberately, <laughs> said, oh, no, we don't use modeling. We use factual data. It was like, well, okay, show me that data because that's a lie. I know, for instance, Letterkenny has about 70 or so. Oh, look, a lot of generations of hydrology reports. And that was offered to DEP. DEP said, oh, that, that doesn't match our modeling. It doesn't have the data we're wanting to collect. So how do we solve that problem? What, what's it going to take to expose, hey, they're not uh, making decisions based on uh, data. Uh, it's based on modeling that uh, may or may not be correct. How do you correct some of that? Is that coming from the top down, from Governor Wolf? Uh, is this just bureaucrats, uh, lifelong career bureaucrats within DEP? Where's that challenge? How do we address that problem? Because I'll tell you what, in addition to, you know, just taxes in general, sure. regulation uh, is what I hear from job creators as really one of the biggest uh, problems that they face because uh, it's not set in stone. So sometimes it, it, this may apply or, well, maybe not, or it's changing so that businesses, employers uh, need that predictability. Uh, having a set tax rate yes. is predictable, but sometimes uh, regulations from DEP or others uh, are not predictable. So as the chair of the Intergovernmental Operations Committee, Matt, we need to change the name of that committee. <laughs> uh, we had this, what, what would you rename it? I would uh, call it the bureaucracy slayer <laughs> or something like that, something more more in tune with yeah. what my goal well, is. People might show up for that. That's <laughs> true. I... <laughs> yeah, the other name kind of lulls you to sleep. Oh, that sounds interesting, yeah. like watching paint dry. <laughs> but uh, we did some research and come to find out Pennsylvania has 153,000 regulations guiding our businesses' lives and farms. So there, there's a policy rule out there that we're in violation of probably just sitting here and right, talking. Right, right, sure. right. And so that, that's a government out of control. So I like to quote Reagan a lot saying we need to govern off our backs and out of our wallets because they're on our backs with regulations telling us how we can and can't live our lives. This is like Germany today. Germany, generally, the rule is if there's not a law where the government doesn't say you can do something, assume you can't. Mm -hmm. And we're becoming a very a society very much regulated that way. And, you know, so, and the regulations result in taxation. When I had business owners telling me, had I not sunk so much money into this county, 
I would leave because Pennsylvania is not open for business. It's not business friendly. Exactly. The, the bump we had last year is thanks to the Trump economy and yeah. the good fiscal policies of the House and Senate yeah. resisting well, Governor Wolf. Yeah, fending off Governor Wolf's massive tax, borrow, and spend plans. And hopefully yes. you'll, you'll do that again and you'll, you'll be able to participate the, in, in that the process. Um, so as, as we wrap up uh, here, Doug, uh, I know that uh, if it's not already out, uh, you are portraying a military hero in a movie called Operation Resist. Correct. Yes. Uh, my crack research team has discovered this. Uh, uh, you're Peter Ortiz. Talk wow. about who you're playing in this in this movie, World War II movie, right? Wow. The, the predecessor to the CIA was the OSS, and the OSS were agents working behind Nazi lines, mostly in Africa and Europe, and you know, working with the underground, sabotaging, setting conditions for a successful Allied invasion, taking out high value targets. And so Peter Ortiz was his Marine colonel in the Second World War who just did magnificent things. I mean, he, the guy was, was amazing. In, in the Netherlands, he was on a, on a reconnaissance mission there with a small team. And he ended up, he, he went to a, a bar in, in the Netherlands where there's a bunch of Nazi officers hanging out. And he went in there, ripped open his raincoat, showed his Marine uniform, then, then proceeded to, to box everybody, knocked everybody out. <laughs> and then the last Nazi he grabbed, he goes, before he knocked him unconscious, said, "Tell Hitler he's next." I mean, the guy. <laughs> so, how did you get this role? And and of course, if, if folks could see you, they go, "Oh yeah, he's he's definitely dead ringer for a military officer in World War II." I think that was the helpful giveaway that I didn't have to do much acting; just just be Doug Colonel Doug Mastriano and, and enjoy the role. And it was fantastic because really the story, the the movie is called Operation Resist. It's on Amazon Prime. It's Operation Resist. And the, the point of the movie is, is it's based off of true characters from the United States Army, but also from the Dutch underground, and Jewish kids trapped with these, this intolerant, bigoted way the Nazis are approaching life and, and their anti-Semitic view. And so it's a true story weaving together the Dutch underground, trying to save uh, Jewish kids from the Nazis, and then the Americans are there you know, in the end to help facilitate the rescue of several people. Well, I am a Prime subscriber, so I look forward to seeing <laughs> it. Uh, and then also, uh, you've got a book coming out uh, later this year that's a compilation of, of a number of authors on on Pershing's lieutenants, correct? That's right. So General Pershing, of course, was a senior American commander during the First World War, so 1917, 1918, and also 1919 during the peace mission in, Europe, in Germany. And so it's it's a study. I co-edited it with General Zabecki, the American Army premier historian in the First World War. And uh, we have several chapters. We've contributed each, but also we've, we've compiled a, a who's who of historians' contributions. So the, the past the, the chapter on General Patton, who was lieutenant colonel in the First World War, so obviously this shaped his view of, of mechanized mm -hmm. warfare. So he's a tank commander, a lieutenant colonel, and then goes on to the Second World War. And anyway, uh, the author of that chapter is Carlo Deste. And anybody who knows that name knows he wrote the Patton papers in the 70s, really, you know, fed the Patton movie and was the guy who really made Patton a household name. So, folks, you can help Doug in his re-election uh, with royalties <laughs> on Operation Resist and Pershing's lieutenants. Well, Doug, it's been a pleasure to get to know you just in, you, in less than a year. Uh, and uh, keep fighting the good fight in our state Senate and uh, fighting for freedom, because I know that that's how you, how you see this. Yeah, we have to win this fight because too much is at stake. We do. Well, thanks for coming on Brews and Views with me. Thank you, Matt. All the best to you. You too. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette 
at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.